We're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. If you would, stand for reading of God's Word. We honor God when we, by standing when we read His Word. Now, by this we know, that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Whatever keeps His Word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in Him ought himself ought to walk, just as He walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him, or blinded his eyes. This is the word of God. Please be seated. The test for knowing God, a test after test after test, John is going to give us in First John. We know that we know him if we pass the test. If we pass the test. The theme of First John is this, that you may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't equivocate. He writes these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Would you please repeat that after me? That we may know that we have eternal life. It doesn't, it's not a question for John. If you do these things, you are demonstrating that you're truly a believer. Now, last week we saw that Jesus was our number one defender. And Jesus is our advocate, our defender. Our parakletos was the word. Remember the parakletos. He is sitting on the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. When an accusation, when the enemy brings an accusation against us, Jesus is our defense attorney. Jesus is before the Father, making, making the argument on our behalf. What is his argument? That he died in our place, that he took our sin debt, that he paid the price that we could not pay on our own. He died so that we could live. It's a very simple message. And he wins every argument because that's the law. Someone had to die for sin. And because we are sinners, we are all under the death curse Jesus intervened for us. Jesus interceded for us. Jesus substituted for us. It was a substitutionary atonement. And because he lives, and we believe that he did that in our stead, we can live forever with him. Greatest gift ever. The greatest gift ever. And we also know that we have a, an advocate on earth here. Remember when Jesus went to heaven, the Holy Spirit was released. And the Holy Spirit is our parakletos here. And he speaks to us truths from God's word. He bears witness of the truth of his word with our spirits. Jesus gives a legal defense, and he offers a declaration of pardon, redemption. Remember what redemption is? Jesus paid the redemptive price, his life for our life. And when he said, it is finished on the cross, the redemptive price was paid to Telestai. It is finished, paid in full. I paid for all of them, Father, with my life. All of their sins were placed upon me. And what does a person have to do? A person has to believe the message. And remember, believe is just not a mental assent. It is commit to, put your trust in, and follow the Lord Jesus. And then receive the gift of salvation that he has offered to us. And remember, all humanity is under the sin curse separated from God. And Jesus' death in verse 2 last, last week atoned for our sins, was the propitiation for our sins. Those are big words. 
Those are Christian words. You know, when you get to be when you become a Christian, there's Christianese that you have to learn. It's like when you go to medical school, you learn a whole new vocabulary. You become a Christian, there's a whole new vocabulary. Well, this is one of those words. He is he was the atonement for our sins, the propitiation, and all that means is he was an acceptable sacrifice, pacifying or appeasing the wrath of God. That all humanity is separated from God, and all humanity has a chance to be saved. God gave his very best so that we could live with him forever. His very best. And all we have to do is receive the gift of life that he offers us. It's a free gift. I mean, who refuses a free gift? Most of the world does when it comes to Jesus. It's a tragedy. But it's a free gift of eternal life. His atonement paid the price for us. And everyone, hear this. Now, we know that it was just Black Friday. And this is kind of that Black Friday weekend where everything is on sale. Everybody wants a deal, and we'll do anything for a deal. But the best deal in human history is when Jesus died for us. He died in our place, and it is the most incredible. Listen to these adjectives. Incredible, amazing, stupendous, unbelievable, greatest gift of all time is the free gift of salvation. Take advantage of it. It's the free gift of salvation. Paul says this. It's offered to everyone. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28, this verse is usually used in the context of something different than what I'm going to share with you. But this verse is very specifically talking about salvation. He says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is salvation language. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many as you have been baptized or immersed into Christ have put on Christ. You're saved. There, and then who can be saved? Well, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everybody is savable. Everybody is savable. In 1 John, John gives us tests that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And remember, the test is for you as an individual. You're not taking the test for the guy next to you, for your husband, for your wife, for your kids, for your friends. This is your test. <laughs> this is your test. Examine your life. Examine your life. And he does not equivocate. He does not equivocate. Examine your life that you may know that you have eternal life. The test for knowing him. That's what we're going to be talking about. We know that we know him if, if, dot, 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 dot. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, this will mean nothing unless you anoint these words. So I ask you to empower these words, clear out our minds and our Soften our hearts. Lord, help us to stop thinking about whatever we're thinking about that is outside these walls. And Holy Spirit, help us to focus in on what you have for us today. Speak to us truths from your word. And as always, what you teach us, help us to put into action. Help us to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Test. Test for knowing him. We know that we know him if. Now, let me ask you this question. Just be truthful. Did anybody love taking a test? You have a test tomorrow. There's always one. There's always one. I will talk about you in just a moment. Yes, I will. Yeah, who likes tests? I'll tell you, the one who likes the test is the one who's prepared. Is the one who's prepared for the test. Yes. And you know what it takes to be prepared for the test? You have to study. You have to work. It doesn't work when you put the calculus book under your pillow and go, oh, osmosis, please work. That does not work. You have to put the time in. You have to put the time in. 
Who likes a test? Those who are prepared. Now, why test? Why are there tests? Well, it's a test whether you have a grasp of the information, whether you know the truth of, of what's being taught. Do you, do you actually know the information? Well, in John, he tests that you may know that you have eternal life. In John 5, 13, he says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope that you have eternal life. Well, I think I have eternal life. Or do I have eternal life? Or, you know, that you may know unequivocally that you have eternal life. So, the question of the ages is, and the question for all Christians is this, how do we really know Jesus is the way? How do we know God is truthful in what he's saying? There's hundreds of religions, and there's many denominations. There's Catholics, there's Protestants, there's Reformed, there's various breeds of Baptists, and Pentecostals, and Methodists, and Wesleyans, and Nazarenes, and even various streams of Calvary Chapel. There, there's there's, there's a, a plethora of denominations. There's actually hundreds of them in, in, in America. So, then you have the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you have the Mormons. And then you have all the world religions who think they're right. Everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks they're on the right path. The vast majority of these people are very, 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 very sincere. You know that, don't you? Oh, we have the right path. Remember this. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. That's correct. Make sure you're on the right path, that you have the right Jesus. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus, is Michael the Archangel, a created being. The Mormon Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, a created being. You know that the Muslim Jesus is the prophet second to Muhammad, a created being. All world religions believe that Jesus is a great teacher, a created being. But the word of God tells us he's God incarnate, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's the path to be on, not these other paths. Get on the right path. That's the important thing, the right path. No, you can't, there can be no freelancing in this. You cannot think, I just have my way and it's okay. My way is good enough, and somehow God's going to let me into his heaven because I'm following my way and I'm doing the best that I can. That's not the way to heaven. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is one path and there is one way. Now, again, Jesus said that he is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. But you have to be on the right path. And Jesus said, now I have this down because I wrote it here, Matthew 7, 13, and 14, enter by the narrow gate or the narrow path or the narrow way. That is the way that leads to life. There is a broad path. There is a broad gate that many go into. The path is well-worn. And everybody says, oh, this is the right path. And it's giant and it's huge and it's the wrong path. Because the majority are taking the wrong path does not mean that they're right. That does not mean that they're right. Remember that. So, get on the right path. Because if you go on the wrong path, you'll be led astray and you will be lost. And how do we know that we're on the right path? Uh, do we have the, are we so arrogant that we say we're on the right path and we're, we know this unequivocally? No, we cannot be arrogant in ourselves, but we can say, I stand on the word of God. He is the one that directs our path. He is the one that directs our step. This is not something that, that, that is up to each individual making a decision on what path they're going to be on. He very specifically says, Jesus Christ is the way. Now, I want you to think about some. Do you know this? 
In heaven, you will not find a single Protestant. Ooh, or a single Catholic, or a single Baptist, Methodist, Wesleyan, Nazarene, Episcopalian, Reformed, Calvary Chapel person. You know what you'll find in heaven? True believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because denominations are of men. They are of men, not of God. Not of God. Now, I think that God has used denominations for specific reasons and that sort of thing, but in heaven, it's, we're all going to be the family of God. It's that simple. You're not there because of the tag that you had here on earth. You're here because you'll be there because of what Jesus did for you. That's it. John is very concerned that believers are being led astray, and they're listening to the Gnostics. And I would suggest to you, Gnosticism, remember, are the enlightened ones. They are the ones that know all the special inside knowledge. And all these world religions and all these cults and all these false ways believe they're the enlightened ones and are trying to lead you astray. Well, the Gnostics were trying to lead the people of John's time astray. And John is very, very specific about this. The siren call of following me was leading many astray. So John, in John's style, does not tippy-toe around the issue. He does not tippy-toe around. He does not mince words. If you are really saved, if you are really, really genuine and on the right path, this is how you will know. The test of knowing him, verse 3 and 6. 3 through 6, he says this, We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Let's develop this a little bit. Now, by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and there are plenty, there are plenty that say, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected or completed in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him dwells in him, that Jesus makes his home in them, ought himself also to walk as he walked, that our lives should be more and more in line with the way Jesus walked this earth. That's how you tell. Now, let's develop this a little bit. The question is, how do we know that we know him if we keep his his commandments? Does this mean we must be law keepers to be saved? The answer is a resounding no. How about the feast days? And how about Passover? And how about keeping the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath? How about tithing? You must tithe 10%. You know, the New Testament doesn't talk about the tithe. It talks about spirit-led giving. Now, you can use the tithe as a marker, but that is not something rigid. That was for the nation of Israel. God has given you the Spirit of God to speak to your heart, to be generous, because God is generous with those who are generous. That's the principle in Scripture. And if I don't do all these things, specifically all these legalistic things, then I'm lost. I'm lost. Not really saved. That's how a lot of people believe. Hear this. Humanity has an inbred desire to do something to secure their salvation. You know that? All throughout the world, people are doing something to secure their salvation. You're a Hindu, you're doing something. You're a Muslim, you're doing something. If you're If you're all these cults, you're doing something to secure your salvation. Do something. It's an inbred, inward thing that is in humanity. Legalism. I must do these things. You know, Paul spoke about this very specifically. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, he says these words. Now, please hear this. 
you have become estranged from Christ. You know what that word estranged is? It's kategero. And it's a Greek word that means ceased, cut off from Christ. How, why? You who attempt to be justified, declared righteous by the law, you have fallen from grace. If you are adding anything to salvation by grace through faith alone, then you are in danger of not being genuine. That's legalism. That is something that is a broad path. The majority of the world is on the broad path. It's a narrow way to God through Jesus, a narrow path. But you know that path is available to all. It's a wide, all are invited to the path, but only few find the path. Isn't that amazing? Few find it. Somehow, some way, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is lost. It's only true if you tack on something that you must do. This is legalism, and this is wrong. The believers dealt with legalism all the way back in Acts chapter 15, when they said, you must be circumcised if you're going to be saved. You must become like a Jew if you want to be saved. And at that council, they determined that, no, that is not true. That is not true. John is not talking about legalism and mandatory feast days and rules to, to be saved. Paul dealt with this. In Galatians 3.24, he says, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. You know why he says that? Because no one can keep the law. If you're thinking you're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, you're lost. Because no human can do it. Only Jesus did. The God-man. The only one. The only one. No Pharisee could do it. Romans 3.20, no one is declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, but rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. We know what sin is. We know that we're lawbreakers and we need a savior because we're lawbreakers. So what is, what is John saying here? What's the first thing he's saying? Well, the proof that we know him and are genuine is we are willing, we are willing to keep his commandments. It's an overflow of our true love for Christ of our true love for Christ. We know him if we keep his commandments. That's a third, that's a third class if, and that's a potential action. It, it remains to be seen in each person if you keep, keep his commandments. Not because you keep his commandments. Big difference. I am saved because of what Christ did for me, not what I do for him. That has to be absolutely clear in everyone's mind. If it's based upon what I do for him, then that is works, and that the Scripture does not teach that. Evidence that I have been saved by grace through faith alone. Remember, sola gra gracia, sola, alone grace, sola fide, alone by faith, sola Christus, alone Christ. That's how salvation comes. Now, evidence that I'm being saved by grace through faith alone is that I obey Jesus' commands willingly. Because I love him, and I desire to, because I'm part of his family. He's done so much for me. There's a, my heart has changed. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 21? 14, 21, it says this, He who has my, has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Look, at we keep his commands because we love him. It's out of honor for him. It's out of respect for him. It's out of our relationship with what he has done for us. He is God that died for us. What about those 
who do not want to keep his commandments in verse 4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What about those? What is John saying that they are liars? The truth is not in them. They are not genuine. They are lost. What is John saying? Whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected or completed in him. True salvation results in a changed life. Let me say that again. True salvation results in a changed life. Now, we've said this before. Some people change at different rates. Some people might have imperceptible changes that we cannot see. Now, we're not the judge. God is the judge. But true salvation, you look at your life, results in a changed life that I'm more and more and more obedient to Christ and what he taught. That's true salvation. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. I I no longer, in verse 6, I no longer live like I did in the past. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. Obedience to God's command is done because I love God. I'm in relationship with him. I desire to do what pleases him. Folks, you know what this is? It's a heart change. Everyone that has come into the family of God has had a transplant, a heart transplant. Your old stone heart has been turned into a soft, pliable heart, a heart that desires to follow God, not forced to follow God, not have to follow God, but you follow him because you love him, because you love him. Genuine love is volitional. It is a choice that is not forced. Ezekiel chapter 36 gives us some insight into what happens with this. And it's chapter 36, verse 26. This is what happens to the nation of Israel when they are corporately saved at the end of the tribulation period going into the millennial reign, where all of Israel shall be saved. All of them that are left will be believers, the third that are left. And what he does, what God does to them, I will give you a new heart, a heart transplant, and a new spirit, a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is the heart of stone? It is a stubborn heart. It is an unrepentant heart. It is an I want my way heart. And I will take that out of you and I will give you a heart of flesh. Malleable, pliable, cooperating with God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments or my commandments and do them. That's what the believer does. Because we have a new heart. You don't do it because you have to. You do it because you had a heart transplant. You've been changed. You've been changed. And now there's a desire to follow the master. There's a desire to follow the master. Verse 6 again, proof that I am abiding in him is this. There is a heart change, a life change. I now will walk as he walked, more and more like Jesus, less and less like me. Remember, it's a process. And you're never going to be perfect here. Just get that down. You're always going to stumble. How do I know? Because John told us in chapter 1, verse 10, that we are going to sin while we're here. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He knows we're going to sin. Oh, but we have an advocate that makes intercession for us. And when we do sin, what is our responsibility? 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Isn't that the greatest thing in the world, to be cleansed 
by the blood of Jesus and brought back into fellowship with him. You don't lose your relationship. But remember, when we sin, there's a block between us and God. And that, that's hurtful. That, you can feel the separation. And you want to take that separation down. Confession is what facilitates that whole process. Now, there's time for a reality check here. As stated many times, our heart change, our transformation from old me to new me is a lifelong process. It's not instant. You are not going to be just abracadabra, perfect you. That is not happening on this side. But it is a process of change. Remember, God is a process-oriented God. He has you in a process of change. When we yield our lives to the Holy Spirit, then we're changed, conformed to the image of Christ. That's the whole sanctification process, being set apart unto Christ. We cooperate with the Spirit of God in that process. Will I fail? Yes. Will we fail? Yes. Will I sin? Yes. Now, what has changed? Well, what has changed is this. I know that I have sinned, and I despise my sin. I despise my sin. I feel the conviction. And you know what? When you really are genuine and true, you know in your heart that you sinned against the Lord Jesus. And that is the most heartbreaking thing. I sinned against my Savior. That's what's really hard. What do I do? I readily confess my sin. I own it. I confess it. And then I move on and continue to grow. Continue to grow. Test number one, keeping God's commandments. Second test, verse 7 through 11. We know that we know him if we love one another. Sounds like it's easy. Let's delve into this just a little bit. 7 to 11. Brethren, talking to the saved, I write no new commandment to you. In other words, you, are, you should already know this. But an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. And he who loves his brother abides in the light. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness or lives in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Just like the God of this age, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. If we're walking in the darkness, we cannot see the light. We cannot see the truth. Let's develop this a little bit. First of all, he says, a new commandment. Well, this new commandment was given 60 years earlier when Jesus gave his last commandment in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Amen. In this way, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, that's the command. You think that was easy for these guys to follow? More on that in just a second. Now, think about this. I want you to think about it. a requirement for ongoing love, like he's talking about here, agape love, sacrificial love. A requirement for that type of love is true fellowship with God. If we are in true fellowship with God, we will then be in true community or fellowship with our fellow man. 
It's, it's a requirement. You must be in fellowship with God to do this. We are too depraved. We are too self-absorbed. It's too all about me. We must stay close to Jesus. He is our power source to relate rightly to other people. We must be connected to him to move from me, myself, and I. Who wants to reign in your life? Mr. Me, Mr. Myself, and Mr. I. The three stooges of our life. And guess what? You let those dudes reign, and what are you going to have? Chaos in your life. You're going to look a little funny. You know, you can be a little cute with your friends. But me, myself, and I reigns. You've got mess in your life. It's just that simple. Danger sign is when a Christian withdraws from fellowship and isolates themselves. You know what what they're doing? They're demonstrating a distance from God, a compromised life. This is 100%. This is not 90%. Anybody that withdraws themselves from fellowship are not being obedient to the commands of Scripture. They are not. They are not. Proverbs 18.1 says this, The man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. I want to suggest to you something. John, in his scripture, talks about loving one another. And he says it over and over and over. He says it. It's replete with love for one another, demonstrates love for God. And that is written in the present active participle. You know what that means? It's ongoing love for one another. It's not, I love you now. Oh, I don't love you now. I love you now. I don't love you now. It's like when it's a husband and wife relationship. I might not like you now at this moment, but I love you. Through all the mess, through all the mess of relationship, we hang in. But I also want you to know in verse 9 and 11, he talks about the warning of hating your brother, of hating your brother. And this is not a spat. We will have spats just like you do in marriages. You will have spats, and you'll have flare-ups, and you'll have disagreements. It happens all the time. But this is talking about an ongoing hate for your brethren. And it's not, it could be a vehement hate, or good mean, the second meaning of that is to love less. I don't hate you, I just don't want to be around you anymore. That's to love less. That is to love less. And that too is written in the present act of participle. People with an ongoing distancing, loving you less. That is one who hates his brother. Seething withdrawal. Or to love less, both are wrong. But John has written us several scriptures that I'm going to give you. There's more than these, but I'm just going to give you a few that demonstrates how important it is to obey his commands and love one another. 1 John 3.10. How we know that we're really children of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now, is he, is he being right, right straight on with you? He's being right in your face telling you the truth. Because the Gnostics were confusing a lot of people. You have a lot of things in Christianity that are confusing people today. This casual Christianity. This, you can live just about any way that you want and still believe that you're a Christian. He's telling you something here. And I have a responsibility as a pastor of a church to tell you the truth. To not make you feel good, but to tell you the truth about what your eternal destiny is if you are not truly genuine. Don't brainwash yourself to think you're genuine if you're not. But if you're not, it's real easy to get in. This is a club that's easy to get into. Jesus paid the dues. All we have to do is say, I'm joining. That's all you have to do. 
1 John 3.10, this is how we know that we are children of God and who are the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right, obey his commands, is not a child of God, nor anyone who does not love his brother. He succinctly says it there. 1 John 3.14 and 15, he says something similar. 1 John 4.11 and 12, something similar. 1 John 4.20 and 21, any, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God. 1 John 5, 1 and 2, everyone who loves a father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands, obeying him and loving the brethren. Those are indications that we're in the family. So hear this. An overflow of fellowship with God is a love for one another. It's an overflow. This isn't natural to be lovey with everyone. And I'll explain that more in just a second. Remember, the command is to love one another, even those who bug us. Do you know any Christians that bug you? Huh? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. How about ones that rub you the wrong way? They irritate us. They're like that little grain of sand in your foot, and you're going, oh, irritate you. It's easy with those we are kindred with to follow this, isn't it? But the challenge comes with those who irritate us, who rub us the wrong way. Now, the question is this. Why is loving one another, not devouring one another, so important? It, there's a, it, it's really simple. That the world may know that we have been with Jesus. That the world may know that we have, and Jesus makes a difference. He makes a real difference in our real lives. Yes, he makes all the difference in our lives. A new command I give you, love one another. It's a witness to the world that we're in a family of God. And we're in a family of God that we're genuine. What does Romans 12, 18 say? Well, it says this in the NIV. I like this translation. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you. In other words, do everything possible on your part to make this happen. <laughs> live at peace with everyone. Remember this. You cannot control another person's response. You cannot control another person's response. You can only do your part. So, what are you to do? Your part. <laughs> your part. As best as within you. Everything within you depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. So, how does love for one another look? Let's take a little test here. How does love for one another look? In short, thick skin, soft heart. You have to have this in a marriage. Thick skin and a soft heart. You have to have this in any friendship, and you really have to have it in a church body. Because so many people are offended so easily. Oh, you didn't notice me. You didn't say hi. It wasn't in first place. I didn't get this. I didn't get that. This happens all the time. If you would, turn with me to Colossians 3.13 to nail this down. I believe this speaks of thick skin, soft heart. Now, the context here is, is that Paul is talking about, in verse 8, those who, ha who are really born again and what they have put off. Like a vestige of clothes, they have put off this list of things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, uh, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. You put these off because you are in Christ and you have the ability to say, no, I won't do that anymore. And then in verse 12, he says, we are, we are to put on 
tender mercies, kindness, humility, long-suffering. And this is the key here. Bearing with one another. Do you know what bearing with one another is? Putting up with one another. You have to do this at every level in relationship. We have to put up with one another. Because everybody's not perfect like us. So we must, be, we must put up with you. Yes. Bearing with one another. You know what that is? That's thick skin. That's thick skin. Bearing with one another. And forgiving one another. Oh, soft heart. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do also do. But above all things, put on love, soft heart, soft heart, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your heart, soft heart, thick skin, soft heart. That is what is required of us, folks. That is what is required of us. So what does this look like? Thick skin, soft heart, readily forgiving, and not just readily forgiving, but forgetting. See, forgetting is a God thing. Forgetting is a God thing. See, we want to bring things back up. Things get a little rough again in your relationship. How many times do you have a fight with your wife and, the, and you bring something up that you've resolved like 12,000 times? Oh, but here we go again. I'm going to dig this one up. and I'm going to grind it into you again. No, that is not what we are to do as Christians. We are to forget. God forgets our sins. As far as the east is from the west, he's forgiven us our sins. Though our sins be as scarlet, they as white as snow. We must be people that forgive and forget past offenses. And no grudge holding, please. Now, grudges, we naturally want to hold the grudge. This is what I want to do. You did something to me, I'm holding a grudge until I can get back at you. You poke me in the eye with one finger, what am I going to do? Boom, the three stooges, okay? Poke you in the eye with two. No grudge holding. And then think the best of other people. This is not natural. This is not natural because we're so consumed with ourselves. We're consumed with ourselves. This is not possible unless you have been with Jesus. If, listen, if you get out of fellowship with him, watch how quickly a critical spirit consumes your being and how destructive your words, your actions, and your thoughts can be. It can happen really, really fast. Christianity is not static. No one stays where they are. You are either advancing or you are regressing. You are never staying the same. Advance, grow. It's real simple, verse 10 and 11. He who loves his brother is in the light. Remember, present active participle, ongoing love. And he who hates his brother is in the darkness. Ongoing hate. Ongoing loving less. Ongoing not resolving the issues. On, ongoing grudge. If there's something that, is, that Christians should have, must have, is the ability to love one another and to deal with our issues and not run from our issues. That is a mark of Christianity. That's a mark that you're growing. If you're running, you're doing your old thing. That's your old thing. If you're isolating, that's your old thing. That's the old way you did things. You didn't get picked for the team and you got the ball, the football. You're going to take your ball and do what? I'm going home. You guys can't play. I got the ball. You better let me play. Yeah, that's how we do it. An offended, disgruntled spirit 
A critical spirit, first of all, spreads. And I want to suggest to you something. When you make a negative comment, a critical comment to someone, it takes at least, in our humanity, it takes at least 10 positive things to overcome the one critical thing. In other words, you cannot throw dirt on somebody and then come back later with one, oh, I'm sorry, I don't, didn't really mean to do that. You think that's going to make things level with you? Oh, no. you got to go, I'm sorry, and then think of nine other things that you better tell that person to bring it up to, to level ground. We, are, we have such a proclivity, such a propensity, such a tendency for the negative. For the negative. It takes ten positives to overcome one negative. So a critical spirit will cause you to walk with your blinders on, not seeing the truth, not seeing the good in another person, consumed with your offense or your prejudice, and withdraw from relationship. It's not a seething hate, but to love less. And Satan, whenever you see people separating, Satan has accomplished his task of division and disunity. You see it in marriages. You see it in friendships. You see it in workmates. And you see it in the church. You see it in every venue of life. Disunity and division. Remember, thick skin, soft heart, love one another demonstrates that we are actually well, when we put up with one another, it demonstrates that we truly love one another. Okay? Are you with me? Anybody drifting off to sleep yet? Okay, wake up. Wake up. It's conclusion time. Conclusion time. The test for knowing him. We know that we know him if, number one, if we keep his commandments. We said this over and over. Because we love him, desire to please him, not because we have to to be saved. Number two, if we have love for one another, put up with one another. Number three, if we follow Jesus' final command, again, loving one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Now, let me just give you a little background on why Jesus said this. It's interesting. Two times in, Jesus, in the ministry, the disciples were fighting with one another. One was in Luke chapter 9, verse 46 and 48, and one was in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Now, both of these times had to do with, with Jesus being betrayed and having to go to his death. So he says this in, in, in Luke 9, Just as Jesus told them he was going to be betrayed into the hands of men, these wonderful men break out into a free-for-all about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Peter, James, and John, almost in a fist fight, you can see a shoving match going on. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I want to be the greatest. Look at me. I want the preeminence. And, and Jesus deals with that. And you know what he says? He gets a little child, and he says, the first shall be last. That's the Jesus way. Not promoting yourself. Not having yourself out there. Oh, look at me. I need the accolades. I need the accolades. I need to be out front. I need the attaboys. Believe me, I'm into attaboys. We all need to be affirmed. But we cannot have that as our, as our specific goal to be noticed. To be noticed. No, we cannot have that. And in, in Luke 22, verse 24, this is literally hours before the crucifixion. Hours before the crucifixion. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to bear the sins of the world. This is weighing on Jesus, okay? He's going to be separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit for the first time in forever, forever. And the demonic hordes, I can just see it in the background, 
in the spirit realm, them hissing at him and ridiculing him, and him hearing these from the pit of hell, all this accusations against him. And these sensitive, compassionate giants of the faith argue again about, I am the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then finally Jesus looks at them and says, a new commandment I give you. You must love one another. In this way, you will show that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The world will know that you've been with Jesus. Folks, we cannot promote ourselves. How about this? Let's continue with this. We know that we know him if we are not self-absorbed, self-promoting. We've said that. If we have a thick skin and a soft heart, not fall into the offense trap. If we willingly, oh, listen to this one. If we willingly submit to one another, that's the Jesus way. Remember, Jesus submitted to his Father perfectly. And it says in John 5.21, we are to submit. And that word, remember, is hupotasso. We put ourselves under other people. We elevate other people. We're to consider others better than ourselves. That's the Christian way. That's the Christian way. Another one, if we do not hold someone's feet to the fire, what do I mean by that? You have something on someone, they deserve punishment, they deserve your, your wrath, and we're holding their feet to the fire, and we, you better do this, you better do this, you better do this, if you want to get things right with me, you better do this. What, is he, what are we saying? When we hold people's feet to the fire, we want to be like God and have mercy and grace on everybody else. Jesus does not hold our feet to the fire. He is merciful. He is gentle. He is gracious. He never says, oh, hurt a little more before we make up. Oh, no, he doesn't do that. How about this one? If we are quick to forgive and don't hold grudges, not have ongoing hate, you're going to look more like Jesus. Quick to forgive. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing? How are you doing? Of course, all these things only can happen with time with God. This is not natural. It only happens with time with God. You must fight your flesh's desire for first place, for payback, to be noticed. Remember, these things exude from us. It comes, it comes out from every pore of my body. I have, to, I have to be honest. These things I have to fight constantly. Fight constantly. They come out of us. Your flesh will not like the new you. The flesh will fight the new you. The flesh will fight the changed you, and it always wants to go back to where it was comfortable. Take me back to those old days, Rick, when we did this, 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 and this. That's where the flesh wants to reside. But oh no, we're changed. We must fight that. Walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. Remember how God has graced you, and remember how God has mercied you. This is how we are to deal with other people. Have love for one another. Be a grace giver. Be a mercy giver. Put others before yourself. Dwight Pentecost had this to say about mercy. Mercy is God's ministry to the miserable. It is both intensely personal and immensely practical. For when I am treated unfairly, is that going to happen? Yes. God's mercy relieves my bitterness. Isn't that nice? When I grieve over loss, and we will all have that, it relieves my pain and anger and denial. 
When I struggle with disability, guess what? That's in just about everybody's future. You live long enough, that will happen to you. It relieves my self-pity. When I endure physical pain, everybody gets on that bandwagon. It relieves my hopelessness. And when I deal with being sinful, mercy relieves my guilt. Isn't that a rescue? Be a grace giver. Be a mercy giver. Micah says this in Micah 6, 8. And I will close with these words. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord desires of thee, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. My greatest hope for us all is that we know that we know him, pass the test, and live out these truths. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we can study your word. And Lord, I must admit, that John is, is really tough. This is not a gentle, gentle word for people, but it is the truth. And I pray right now that any person in here that is dealing with difficulty loving one another, holding grudges, not being able to reconcile, that they will actually consider this and do what the Spirit of God is asking them to do to go beyond ourselves and to be a mercy giver and a grace giver, something only God does within us. And I pray for each person in here today that we'll be those who desire to obey the commands of our Savior because we love him. We want to serve him. We want to please him. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. There is no friend better than him. Lord, may we be obedient to your commands because we love you. Holy Spirit, please do your work in each heart today. And may we leave here different than the way that we came in. In Jesus' name, amen.